0: the great fundamental issue now before our people can be stated briefly. It is, are the American people fit to govern themselves, to rule themselves, to control themselves? I believe they are. My opponents do not. I believe in the right of the people to rule. I believe, again, that the American people are, as a whole, capable of self-control and of learning by their mistakes.
1: Welcome to Serve to Lead. I'm your host, James Strzok. As we get started, may I ask a favor? If you find value in this podcast, please give us a high rating on iTunes and connect via Twitter at James Strock and via our website, servetolead.org. With us today is a revered leader of the American legal profession, Michael Traynor. Michael Traynor's life and work represent the highest ideals of the lawyer statesman. His public service began early, Following graduation from the University of California at Berkeley, he served on active duty in the U.S. Marines. After attending the Harvard Law School, he served as a Deputy Attorney General of California and the Legislative Committee Council. He then joined the prestigious Cooley Law Firm in San Francisco, where he worked for more than four decades. Michael Trainer's career includes a number of the highest responsibilities and recognitions offered by the legal profession. He served as president of the American Law Institute. He's a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, as well as the American Association for the Advancement of Science. He's taken a leading role in the great issues of our time, from civil liberties to environmental protection. At a moment when legal and institutional issues are front and center amid the political turmoil of recent decades, we're most fortunate to have Michael Trainer's wisdom on law and leadership and how today's Americans can best advance our ideals into the future. Michael Trainer, welcome to Serve to Lead.
0: Jim, uh, thank you very much and thank you for your generous introduction and I recall uh, with pleasure when we first met in 1986 uh, when you were a young staff member of the Senate Environment Committee and I was there talking to you about issues of joint and several liability you just won the Ross Essay
1: Contest. And I've been learning from you ever since, and I hope to keep learning for a long time. feeling is likewise. Well, Mike, as you know better than anyone, this country is famously a nation of laws. From Tocqueville to the present day, lawyers have played an outsized role. Nonetheless, in recent decades, at least since the 1980s, there's some sense that the lawyer-statesman ideal may be eroding. You may recall the story of John J McCloy the great lawyer statesman of the mid-20th century who was asked by John Anderson running for president in 1980 for a list of young lawyers who were in the lawyer statesman tradition and McCloy replied that there weren't any or many coming up and Chief Justice Rehnquist wrote about the decline of the lawyer statesman in that decade as well and the dean of Yale Law School followed suit what do you think, and is that too grim a summary that I just presented?
0: I think it's pretty grim. Uh, I will, I will uh, get in a moment to why it's getting harder, but I'd like to start with an encouraging note. Uh, at least in my view, there are some uh, recent current examples uh, of uh, the lawyer-statesman ideal, and let me name a few. Uh, there are three literally uh, statesmen, former legal advisors to the Department of State, Conrad Harper, Harold Coe, and John Bellinger, all friends and coll- colleagues in the uh, ALI. Uh, also, Don Ayer, uh, former deputy attorney general under President Bush won. Uh, uh, the current and former presidents immediately of the ALI, David Levy and Roberta Remo, who was also the first woman to be president of the American Bar Association, and the late Charles Allen Wright and Rod Perkins, my predecessors. Bill Webster, former director of both the CIA and the FBI, and the late Bill Coleman, former Secretary of Transportation under President Ford. They'd all fit uh, within my view of the lawyer-statesman ideal. But let me say a word about why I think it's getting harder. Uh, The demands of law firms and law practice, Uh, the attendant greed that is uh, part of uh, the business of law today, Uh, the departure from the principle that law is primarily a service profession and not a capitalistic risk enterprise the pressure of time and the reduced time to reflect and participate in public and community work uh the the impact of specialization and i guess overall a decreased sense of public responsibility
1: so what would you do If we had a special group of amazing historical lawyer leaders and you brought them together, let's say you had Elihu Root from the last century who helped start the American Law Institute, I believe, and other lawyers you've mentioned, what would you all suggest going forward to improve this situation?
0: I think uh, the ALI format is a useful one where we get thinkers, lawyers, judges, academics, and the legal profession together uh, to work out a a statement that is coherent, that advances uh, legal principle, and that reflects uh, the views of, can be very varied views and it's a rigorous process of uh, getting a draft a statement. For It could be a statement on the ethical responsibilities of lawyers in today's atmosphere. Uh, it wouldn't necessarily have to be under the auspices of, uh, of the ALI, of which Elihu Root was a founder and honorary president. Uh, it could be some other format, but in general, I think an assembly a group could be assembled might very willingly be uh, able to contribute some time to both the drafting and the uh, articulation of such, such a statement.
1: Well, in preparing to talk with you today, I did some reviewing of some very famous historic law firms' websites. And one thing that struck me was how few of them have much detail about their history. And I mean even the most illustrious of firms Have you noticed that? And I wonder if if that's a general thing, if younger lawyers or even older ones who are coming in today simply don't have a sense of the history of the institutions they're part of. And that may be in some ways, if it is a problem, uh, similar to what happened in the finance sector where let's say at Lehman Brothers, which had an illustrious history and many consumers relied upon it, trusted the institution, but the newer people didn't share that history or commitment. What do you think?
0: It's an important observation. Uh, I can't say empirically that I've explored that. Uh, Just anecdotally, occasionally, looking at uh, law firm websites or institutional websites, you do sense a sparseness uh, in history and almost a a willingness not to go back in we had a wonderful leader in San Francisco of the San Francisco Bar when we uh, kind of returned, retooled that Bar Association in the early 1970s. And the first president of the bar became president of the State Bar and APA was Bob Raven. I think within that, his firm, Morrison & Forster, which has been a wonderfully uh, publicly oriented and distinguished uh, professional law firm, has done a history. I, I did. I consulted with somebody there a few years ago about my experience with the late uh, Bob Raven and all his contributions, but I think those are ex- exceptions rather than a, a, a general statement. And I I have say with some regret that I, if you if you were to assemble uh, a group of young associates who are under extraordinary pressure in these firms to bill hours and say you wanted to have a two-hour session on the firm's history I'm not sure how many you'd get there unless unless there was some motivating factor that they could charge it as billable hours that's a little (laughs) cynical I think but it shows some some limited degree of interest and capability of and the and and having the time to to go into that history
1: well that kind of (laughs) grueling picture you're painting of these law firms today uh, Rings true from a piece you may have seen in the Wall Street Journal last summer about big law firm practice. Did you happen to see that?
0: I'm aware of it. I may have read it, uh, and I I did an essay on this subject in 1999 when the key art, the lead article in the Vanderbilt Law Review was how to be a happy, healthy, ethical lawyer in an unhappy unhealthy unethical profession (laughs) my little piece was called a pursuit of happiness and was to suggest that maybe with a very careful look at law firms and some balance in your approach and being willing to take the risk of uh, you know building a snowman with your kids or flying a kite uh, instead of the grueling uh, demand meeting all the grueling demands was, was an important alternative approach but this has well, been going on for some time.
1: Well, you know, another area where lawyers have an outsized effect, of course, is the political process, and I think no matter what one's political affiliation or lack of affiliation may be, there are big things happening in recent decades, not all entirely positive, positive. and one is a growing sense that our politicians of all types are not consciously, intentionally working to protect the institutions and norms they've been entrusted with. You see this in part by the incapacity to compromise or even to work together in some cases, and isn't there a risk from this that the underlying institutions could be damaged over time far beyond the disagreeable or disappointing personalities we see at present?
0: yes indeed there there is a serious risk uh and I understand that a few years ago the that area of the Senate dining room where senators of both parties could comfortably talk with each other has been removed uh, there's very little dialogue now uh they the office holders are very busy they go home to their constituents on weekends they spend little time in washington and very little of that time talking cordially with each other I think it's a shame uh, and I think it does uh, discourage independent thinking uh, in I know you don't want to get into too much of the current day-to-day politics today but I'm in comparing what I would view as uh, the supine uh, and lack of leadership and unwillingness of of a number of senators to speak out as to what's going on. I'm reminded of uh, Margaret Chase Smith in June 1 of 1950. Uh, She was the first woman, I think, in the Senate, and she was a freshman senator for Maine, and she filed a declaration of conscience against Joe McCarthy and what he was doing at the height of what... And what her efforts led to was uh, an eventual censure. She was originally... uh, uh, followed by six senators, whom McCarthy said was Snow White and her six dwarfs. (laughs) uh, She's an example of a kind of courage in an era where we don't see that today.
1: Well, let's drill on that for a minute, if we could. If you, you know, looking back on that time, you had a certain group and a certain tradition. For example, you mentioned Margaret J. Smith, or I believe Ralph Flanders at that era, these people who viewed themselves irrespective of party as putting their own, uh, you know, often willing to put their own short-term interests at risks for their view of the country, and there seemed to be a lot of people who respected that. Is that naive to look back on that way, or is something different going on?
0: It's not naive to look back, and I think we can harken back and use them as examples. for today's era, uh, but I, it's probably gotten harder today's given today's polarization in politics.
1: Let me ask you about the, sort of the flip side on institutions. On the one hand, there are people who are disregarding institutions from the law side, but there are other lawyers who perhaps don't push enough against institutions, and that's another risk uh, given the many duties lawyers have. I mean, on the notorious side, one thinks of the Nazi regime in the 1930s, when many lawyers moved rapidly into service of the new order, despite being in a country with a very strong high culture and educational tradition. In the U.S., we look back today with grave disappointments at court decisions, upholding institutions that were manifestly at variance with our fundamental ideals, the Dred Scott case on slavery in 1857, the U.S. Supreme Court is perhaps the top of this, or in California, the infamous case of People v. Hall in 1854, where a murder conviction of a man of European descent was set aside by the Supreme Court of the state because three prosecution witnesses were Chinese. Now, how do lawyers thread this needle of fighting or protecting institutions when really the lawyers often have a unique role to do so.
0: Well, I think you, you have to speak up, and you have to speak up early. Uh, the Nazi judges uh, and the Nazi lawyers were overall willing collaborators uh, with the Nazi regime. Uh, they can't be excused that they could work within the system or were unwilling participants. I think there was only one judge who resigned uh, at that time, and uh, you've got to fight uh, being, you know, tired in your compassion or indifferent emotionally, or view the or viewing the law as some sort of uh, uh, overriding authority that is to be respected, devoid of its moral content and moral force. Uh, I had an experience with this. I mean, and I'll give you an example. Uh, I was in, I guess it's 2003 and 4. Harvard had a long-term strategy for dealing with terrorism. And uh, most of what their recommendations were, I thought, quite positive, and uh, how to deal with it had a long-term legal strategy. But there was one uh, recommendation they had on the, on coercive interrogation, which was a kind of torture light. And I viewed it as uh, bureaucratizing abuse. Uh, And to my surprise, I was the sole dissenter. Uh, I spent a lot of time writing my dissent, uh, both for the press conference and then later for uh, publication on the website. And I did have one colleague, uh, Lance Liebman, who joined me uh, from the ALI, but I was in a minority of one and then two, on that and I just feel we have to speak up uh... there was a supreme court case a few years ago involving uh... issues under the fourth amendment search and seizure and justice Stewart, in an opinion for the court disallowed the intrusion and he said we're not going to let it let it intrude and not by a fraction of an inch are we going to let it intrude and i think lawyers have got to spot that potential fraction of an inch and speak up against it
1: (laughs) Let's segue toward leadership. You've worked with governors, senators, presidents, CEOs, all kinds of people. Are there individuals that you have worked with that stand out as effective leaders or have cautionary lessons as well?
0: Well, my ideal in politics was uh, my classmate and friend, uh, Senator Paul Sarbanes, who who has served the longest of any Senator from Maryland, the first to serve over 30 years, or 30 years. Uh, I think Supreme Court justices that come to mind are Robert Jackson, a brilliant writer, and Ruth Ginsburg, Sandra Day O'Connor, John Stevens, just to name a few. Uh, my dear friend, uh, former senior judge and and uh, chief judge of the U.S. District Court here in San Francisco, now teaching at the center in his name at Berkeley Law, Felton Henderson, about whom a documentary was made called The Soul of Justice. Uh, I think people like Paul Friedman, a senior judge on the U.S. District Court of uh, the District of Columbia, who recently spoke out about, against the uh, presidential abuses and charges uh, against and unfair charges against members of the judiciary, are all uh, examples. Uh Jeff Hazard, my colleague and friend, uh, who who's died a couple of years ago, director, exemplar of the American Law Institute, and and teachers especially. Uh, I recall, too, Jacobus Tenbrook, whom I learned uh, about the First Amendment in my freshman year at Berkeley, and then Paul Freund at uh, Harvard Law School, who once told me, uh, you know, you make a life, uh, simple words yet profound ones, I think.
1: Now you are a very prolific and fine writer and some of the people you mentioned are also legendary writers as well like Justice Jackson What observations or advice do you have about writing, particularly for lawyers?
0: Be clear Uh, Do the research you need to do Uh, Often it's extensive but then try to distill it into a clear uh, and into a clear message, uh, and I generally have to stop there. I wish I had my mother's talent for metaphor, but I don't. Uh, and And I think sim- simple direct writing is probably in today's day and brief uh, the best approach.
1: If someone came to you and said they wanted to learn how to do this, what would you tell them? and they then they don't have the opportunity, say to, to go to Harvard Law School or anything like that. What would you suggest they do?
0: Well, I think that, you know, the old Strunk and White, uh, there's a book, I can't remember the author's name, called The Reader Over Your Shoulder. Uh, oh. I'd encourage him to read the essays of Brian Garner, uh, who writes extensively uh, for the ABA and separately. Uh, and it's always uh, illuminating. Uh, and then good storytellers. Uh, it doesn't have to be just legal writing.
1: I thought one of the interesting techniques I've heard suggested at times is for people, let's say that they're a legal writer, they would identify someone like you and your writing, or Justice Jackson, or whoever of that nature, and then one approach is simply to start by transcribing, just writing it, writing it uh, like you're being punished in school almost as a kid, you know, uh, just because if you literally write it out then you begin to become aware of what's underneath the hood of the writer and the writing.
0: Uh, that's an interesting idea. For me, I don't uh, know that it would it would work. It, it would sounds it sounds tedious, and uh, and maybe is a good way to, to at least start learning. I think reading text. I, I just uh, reread uh, Lincoln's second inaugural address. It's only three pages long in double space is, is beautiful uh, I think studying things like that uh, are, are a good approach whether, whether I'd gain from writing maybe it's like practicing the piano or a musical instrument or something through repetition uh, you gain some not only some practice but some insights into how things chords and music are put together or paragraphs are put together in a in an essay.
1: It's interesting how many people don't think in the first instance of Lincoln as the great lawyer he was. and He had such a remarkable capacity to communicate through his writing.
0: It's it's very moving uh, to go reread that uh, material.
1: Now, you're known as a remarkable mentor to a number of people. I'm honored to be one of that large group. What is your view of mentorship? And what sets apart good mentors? And what should someone who aims to be a good mentor think about? And also, what should somebody who seeks a good mentor be thinking about?
0: Well, I think there's lots of elements to it. Uh, I look on being a good mentor as being a sponsor, uh, looking out for opportunities, being a sounding board, having a confidential relationship of trust, uh, looking out for people's careers and providing opportunities for them, uh, encouraging them to, uh, to take on as much responsibility at, at an early age as they possibly uh, feel comfortable with, uh, providing uh, feedback, uh, encouraging them to call whenever, uh, they want to, or if a question crosses their mind, or they want to review some ethical issue, uh, providing support on various levels. Uh, it's been a joy for me. Uh, sometimes people ver- view it as a burden. And of course it can come in different varieties. Uh, I've been involved recently with, uh, Berkeley, uh, community scholars, uh, I'm no longer on that board, but I do, uh, Review scholarship applications from kids from Berkeley High, and sometimes interview them, uh, and providing opportunities for some of these kids who come from backgrounds of sometimes extraordinary hardship and have demonstrated resilience in dealing with it. You just you really want to reach out and help them, and I think communicating a sense of uh, of support. Uh, and feedback and sponsorship is good
1: let's talk a minute about the environment you came of age in a time where the law was literally in the front line of changing the united states of course the civil rights era and beginning with brown v board is a landmark in the 1950s then into the 1960s the environmental movement took hold with a huge legal component a lot of it started in California, where you've been a noted practitioner throughout your life. What what have you observed about the movement of the environmental progress, and where do you see that going, and what role do lawyers need to play in this next phase?
0: Very interesting, and you've, of course, been a leader yourself. Uh, going back to your work at the Bush administration, first Bush administration, the Division of Enforcement, and then uh, your pioneering and in, in work as secretary, the first secretary, uh, founding secretary for Governor Wilson of the California Environmental Protection Agency, I've been environmentalist all my life. Uh, my legal work has not been uh, has all been pro bono, it hasn't been that extensive, but it started really in 1962 when I was helped on a brief involving the uh, opposition to the nuclear power plant by PG&E at Vega Bay, and then. Uh, I guess I first became aware of this, uh, not as a lawyer, but as I was 15 years old, backpacking mainly in Sierra and ended up on a Sierra Club high trip in 1950 and learned about a a possible trans-Sierra road. And it was nice to be able, with the help of a great colleague, a young colleague, uh, to kill that road administratively when Governor Reagan was governor of California and he had a wonderful resources secretary. Norman Livermore. Now, about the development of the law in this area, which has been enormous with the different statutes, uh, I would hope that we'd get to the point where, where we could really consider, away from the lobbying pressures of Washington, what you wanted to do when you were secretary, and that was to get an approach that would unify the environmental laws. That's still on the agenda to be done, and that would be very important. Uh, so that we're not talking about uh, separate agencies for laws for air and water and hazardous waste. They're all systematically related, and it would be good to have a more systematic approach to environmental law. I think for the future, that would be uh, a good idea.
1: You Um, know, it's very interesting that uh, 2020, as you know well, is the 50th anniversary of the establishment of the U.S. EPA, Right. and it's very striking that it's also going to be the 30th anniversary of the renewed Clean Air Act of 1990. There has not been a major environmental statute of that level enacted since that time. What do you think is going on?
0: Well I, a lot of it is the lobbying and the pressure in, uh, in Washington and the and the short-range interests of people like the in the fossil fuel industry uh, I'd like to think this is not necessarily a, a partisan issue, the environment shouldn't be partisan. I, I would. My hunch is that if you've got the, the plant managers of the country in, the, in a forum, that most plant managers want to be in communities that they're making a contribution to and, and want to be known as, as, uh, as clean environmental people. Obviously, there's going to be some exceptions. But I think if you could get the, the sensibility of some plant managers around the country and get away from the heavy lobbying and get away from the greed of the fossil fuel industry, which is all the big challenges, that you might uh, make some headway. Apart from systematizing the environmental laws, I think one area of great need, and perhaps it could be reflected in the statute, uh, would be something called an Enhanced Environmental Enforcement Act, And that would involve uh, far greater resources than are presently devoted at governmental levels, federal, state, and local, to auditing, to reports, uh, to enforcement of the laws criminally and civilly, to civil actions, and then some attention also to uh, instrumentations and measurement. Uh, I'm concerned, we've we've already seen the... uh, the Volkswagen uh, scandal involving the fraudulent reporting of admission uh, emissions. Uh, and we we know the history of the fraudulent activity around the two thousand and eight financial crisis. And I wouldn't be surprised if we're going to see some scandals in reporting of greenhouse gas emissions uh, and and hence a greater need for uh, instrumentation, measurement, auditing, Public education and vigorous enforcement.
1: Is there a particular proposal? I didn't. Sorry, excuse me. I, is there a particular proposal out now for enhanced enforcement, or is this more of, hypothetical right now?
0: I'm not aware of one, but I haven't looked into it. Uh, I haven't researched the point. I, I don't. I don't think there is uh, the kind of at the kind of level I'm talking about.
1: Yeah, I've not heard of it either. I'd love to hear of it. And, you know, to your point, I did some work in Germany with Deutsche Umwelthilfe in 2015, and they were part of a group that had uncovered that the automakers serving the EU were missing the overall EU emissions targets by 38%. My gosh. So... And this is where, too, one could argue the fact the United States, and this is not a partisan question, because this goes back through administrations of both parties many years now, has basically been absent on the international scene in an active way. So nobody is calling these things out, even where they're uncovered.
0: The biggest, no, and the biggest concern I have right now, of course, is, is what I'd call climate disruption. It's not mere climate change. Yes, And now at 85 years old, I'm, I'm pretty aware that progress is very hard to achieve, even incremental progress, and progress usually occurs incrementally. But we're dealing with a phenomenon now in climate disruption where we know from the science that incremental change, incremental progress is not adequate, that we've got to have some breakthroughs, and it doesn't look like uh, we're getting there at a policy level, at an international level, at an engineering uh, level, or really at any level.
1: So if, if the Democratic Party were to come to you, because I think the Republicans have already settled on their presidential nominee, uh, if the Democratic Party were to come to you and said that our current, what, two or three dozen candidates is insufficient, we would like you, Michael Trainer, to run, and particularly to focus on climate, what would you urge the country to do? right now.
0: <laughs> it's a wonderful hypothetical question because uh I would decline on the ground of age alone but, <laughs> for the reasons I think you need a younger leaders in this country.
1: You'd you know, be young for the current days.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'm young in my outlook, I believe still and I enjoy a good laugh every now and then and some useful activity and enjoy my grandchildren and children and uh, all of that but uh, I'd like to see some younger leaders but uh i'd like to i'd like people to i'd like a leader to engage the country in a discussion about how to improve our environment to engage the country in uh, considering issues of environmental justice and climate refugees from uh, the rising sea levels uh to enlist as i've written about uh the the arts community, and by that I mean poets and painters and musicians, uh, people like the Climate Music Project and the Glacier Ballet and others, in communicating to people not only on the left side of their brains, but the right, the right side of their brains to engage them uh, in this issue and see whether we could have uh, uh, a really reinvigorated, a uh, new approach and in and strong bipartisan approach to addressing environmental ills.
1: Part of that has got to be a shared understanding of the basic problem and doing the arithmetic of what different mitigation or remedial strategies might involve. And one of the issues that seems to have been put to the side over time, but may be coming back, is what would the role be, if any, of nuclear power if we're serious about greenhouse gas reduction, what is your take on that?
0: Well, that's a, that's really a critical question, and I I depart, I think, from some environmentalists uh, on that issue because going back to reading the initial uh, IPCC reports and other other studies about nuclear power, it potentially is a uh, is a clean wedge not a not a solution in itself, but a part of an array of solutions. And uh, the three fundamental engineering problems with uh, nuclear power uh, or policy problems are uh, safety of the plant, proliferation, that's a security issue, and nuclear waste. Uh, there had been a fourth problem, which I think has been starting to be remedied, and that was that the industry was run by old white men uh, and that's, I took a look at Echelon's board report recently and uh, saw that they're diversifying and have a youth, more useful uh, approach but nuclear power you can address the safety problem I think through smaller and more dispersed plants. You can address a proliferation problem through high, much higher measures of security and uh, you can address the waste problem Uh, hopefully with the advances in chemistry and engineering with some co-generation of enough power to uh, eliminate the nuclear waste that's co-generated with the energy. Uh, Whether you could have a a fusion torch or something to clean up the waste that we presently have is another question. Uh, And whether someday I think the repositories of nuclear waste may themselves become a a potential source of uh, of energy uh, through transmutation of the atomic nucleus, for example, of uh, of radioactive waste, either to to eliminate the half life or substantially reduce the half life. So I think there are th- there are possibilities for addressing, not necessarily solving, but addressing the fundamental problems of uh, of safety proliferation and nuclear waste Uh, the attitude the management attitude I think is not healthy to say well we're not going to go into this unless you give us giant subsidies unless you give us immunity from liability unless you give us protection from the minimization of liability Uh, we've got to have a combination of skills science economics nuclear physics, and a principled and adventuresome system of management that says we can tackle this problem and provide a a wedge and provide it soon to address, uh,
1: partially at least, the problem of climate disruption. Mm -hmm. Well, as we've touched on briefly and lightly, your entire career has not only been so effective and impressive taken by itself also your timing has happened to hit these remarkable times in history if i might say and one of the ways looking ahead that your work comes to mind is that you are part if i may say so of a rising group of people who were at older ages than in the past incredibly productive and valuable in so many ways uh, and that's new it's almost like in the post-industrial uh, the, the certainly the post World War II era there was often relatively early retirement in part because physical jobs and so on but today it's very different how do you look at this as an older person and a, a pioneer in this sense of and because many are coming behind you uh, as well with the baby boom bulge and so on
0: I'd like to people to start thinking Or renew their thinking or amplify their thinking that, you know, they have a they have an obligation to our country to give the best they can. Part of our educational system is broken down, I think, in terms of just basic wow. civics. Uh, I think one study recently asked kids, and they were more able to identify judges on American Idol than on the Supreme Court of the United States. So I think some engagement early... Uh, of people, I'd like to see some form of uh, universal public service, not just military, that was my role for a limited time, but uh, health and environmental, uh, educational, Peace Corps type things, uh, of course the military, uh, works products, uh, works projects, uh, infrastructure work, that sort of thing Mm -hmm. where people are are engaged in early stage of their life in in helping our country
1: in terms of civic education as you referred to and in terms of these historical polls that show how incredibly uninformed particularly young people are about u.s history what can be done there and what ought to be done about the fact that so many people on the one hand they know very little but what they do know tells them that they ought to be ashamed or even very negative on the United States and our history. They sort of seem to take the bad aspects and think that represents the entirety of what we stand for and don't pay attention to the other aspects. What, what do you think about those issues?
0: Well, I, I have thought about them and I worked, I had to the good fortune to work with Justices O'Connor and Breyer in the ALI on a joint project uh, which became known as the Sandra Day O'Connor Project on the Judiciary and she was very engaged and deeply engaged in civics education uh, including looking for new techniques of, uh, of educating kids I, I think part of it is not just uh, the introduction to what our government is about and to give them a sense of participation in it and a sense of obligation, uh, uh, well-meant, but to learn from international leaders. Uh, and I mean, people like Nelson Mandela, that, that biography is a powerful one, I think. Uh, yes. Uh, that, that, that could inspire people.
1: Well, let's turn to some closing questions, if we might. What are some of the books or other creative works that have been particularly influential on you and that you might commend to others?
0: Well, the books, I'll, 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 when I go to Washington, I'd, not every time, but I am sort of renewed my faith in this country when I go to the Lincoln Memorial or read things like his second inaugural address, which I mentioned, or the Vietnam Memorial. I recently read the biography of Ulysses S. Grant by Ron Chernow. It's about 800 pages. It's a long read, but it's an inspiring one about a president who was a real leader and one who'd been line for a long time as a drunk uh... one book i read as a young man which i found very influential was the uh, life of louis pasteur by uh... valerie Rideau. pasteur had overcome uh... a lot of scientific objection to his emerging germ theory and a lot of uh... dedication to the pre-existing and false theory of spontaneous generation he invented the rabies vaccine and it's it's a, it's an illustrious life not a, not a legal life uh, I've read a fair amount of uh, of nonfiction, fiction, and watched documentaries about the French collaboration. Uh, works by Julian Jackson, uh, the Patrick Modiano, and we recently finished watching the series called *The French Village*, about the collaboration and resistance of the French during the period of 1939 to 1945. All of those are important, I think, in Useful and sometimes, in some cases, inspiring. Uh, and they and they and they raise the question of what does a citizen do? You know, you, in my view, citizens have to have to both act and and speak up and not sit back and think somebody else is going to take care of it or or uh, say say nothing. Uh, but that's a hard challenge for some some people, I think.
1: And let's ask you the big question. You know, Claire Booth Luce famously instructed President Kennedy that everyone, even presidents, are ultimately encapsulated in a single sentence. What would you like your sentence to be?
0: I'm going to reduce it to one word. Which Let me preface my answer. But uh, Senator Michael Joseph Mansfield was a famous and wonderful senator of the United States. He lived to be 98. Uh, from Montana, former, and then he was also ambassador, I think, to Japan. His gravestone at the Arlington Cemetery gives his years, 1903 to 2001, and all it otherwise says on it is PVT, Private U.S. Marine Corps.
1: Mm.
0: So my one word would be citizen.
1: Well, that certainly puts you in powerful company. You and Mike Mansfield, Theodore Roosevelt was also insistent, you recall, even after he was president, he has to be called the colonel. He felt That's that was the military service was the highest honor. That's right. Well, Michael Trainer, how can listeners best follow and connect with you online? Is there a website that you recommend people can go to or other social media? Uh,
0: you know, I have to say I'm not on social media. I've I've avoided it so far but it probably it's a factor of age and also the somewhat uh, unwillingness to, to let other people get profit off my information but I do have an email address it's mtrainer at com.
1: well that's great to have and I want to thank you so much Mike Trainer, for being with us today and sharing your wisdom on these issues and also want to thank our listeners for being with us today. And if you are so inclined, please do rate us highly on iTunes and follow us on Twitter at James Strock and connect via our website at ServeToLead.org.